All right, I've created another one-point sermon because I'm kind of into this one-point sermon thing as of the last time I preached. So we'll see, uh, see kind of how that works. I also want to leave uh, an opportunity. I didn't prepare anybody for this sort of intentionally, whether it's uh, during our communion time, whether uh, Troy wants to kind of build it into our worship time, or whether we just do it at the end of the sermon, uh, for some opportunities for you guys to respond. I've gotten a lot of responses uh, and unfortunately, when you tell me things about the sermon series that are impacting or interesting, there's no real way to communicate that to everybody. And so it's a better, uh, I think, way of communicating that when we're all gathered here. And so it gives some chance for you to respond. Uh, today, it really does kind of wrap up the foundation of our uh, spirit series moving forward. We're going to be digging in from each week following onto some really kind of narrow and specific aspects of uh, the Holy Spirit and his work. And so this kind of last sermon uh, you know, lays the framework. And so it's a good time to just take a moment, pause, think, uh, it, whether that's questions, whether it's uh, thoughts, uh, whether it's uh, things that you feel like the Spirit's been leading you to say or communicate to more than just one or two people. Uh, we'll take an opportunity at the uh, sometime uh, before the day uh, the service is out to to let you uh, think about that. So you might want to write something down as you're going. All right, uh, I have one point, and, and my point is we need not be restless. Um, excellent. Okay, good deal. Uh, but that's kind of um, jumping the gun because I didn't quite give you the sermon title for this, and I think we posted the sermon title somewhere, but maybe not. Maybe I need to do that um, on the Facebook page. I can never really remember where to do things and what to do, and yeah, it's hard. Um, the title is The Spirit is the Presence of the Future. I have mentioned this idea before. Uh, this is largely influenced by a book that the interns read through, Paul, the People, Spirit of God by Gordon Fee. Um, and it's a really wonderful idea, and it's an idea that I've you know, kind of been exposed to and thought about in the past, but never really quite had the words for it. And this is a succinct way of communicating what it is that I think we all wonder and know to some degree, but maybe don't focus on enough. And, and so to say it again, the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is the presence, like God's presence, as Leslie talked about last week, of the future. All right? And um, so my point as a result of that is we need not be restless. Restlessness is something that I struggle with and have always struggled with. Since I was a young kid, a lot of my anxiety uh, flowed out of either fear of things happening, which I somehow lost my fear of bad things happening, um, which is not always a good thing. Um, but now, a lot of my anxiety more comes from this restless energy, and I think maybe the best way to define restlessness in a really simple way is a constant focus on the past or the future, an inability to be in the present, and that's at least how I experience it. And I don't experience it on some grand scale always, although I have a new career like every three or four uh, years. Not to say that it's time for me to leave ministry. I have been places for longer than like 10 years, okay? I've been teaching at Colin now for like going on 13 years, uh, so that's exciting. But generally speaking, I like to switch things up every couple of years and just do something completely different. And some of that is, is just restless energy. Some of that can be really good. Um, but what I'm talking about more here is kind of a spiritual restlessness, a restlessness of longing for a past time when things were better, 
Some of you are in college right now or experiencing a, a very spiritual high in your ability to relate to God, relate with people, be at work in ministry. And one of the things many of us adults experience as we graduate is a reaction to that, a sort of a, a you know, life changes quite a bit, and it's very, very easy to look back on the past and think, man, that's when I was really spiritual, really loved God, really involved in ministry, and now all I'm doing is just sort of a cog in a machine of a company and uh, can't figure out how to do ministry anywhere. And so past looking. And then others of us, uh, you know, I, I remember even in college, not so much from a spiritual standpoint, but just sort of a life standpoint, I would always be looking forward to some new benchmark. And of course, in college, you have that. You have semester turnover, you have the exams at the end of the semester, you have a year when you have these uh, kind of time and, uh, times and places where things get switched up. And so you can kind of benchmark things happening. But as you become an adult, it's harder and harder to benchmark certain things because it's kind of like, all right, I'm 22 or 23, I've got about 50 years of life left. What happens during that time? Career, marriage, kids, and that's sort of the extent of it. You might have three benchmarks to look forward to, and um, yeah, uh, I don't know. So if you don't have kids and you're not planning to get married, <laughs> once you get a career, your life is over. Uh, so, but we benchmark stuff. Uh, I think it's even part of the reason why when we gather together here, it's hard to really just enjoy it because we're constantly thinking of the stuff we have to do later or get to do later or whatever it is. And so as a people, and this is probably a human problem, I'm not going to try to make an argument that millennials are more or less restless. I don't know. I've not thought about that. Uh, as, a, as a people, we're restless. I mean, if, if you're not convinced of it, just think back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, when you really look at the primary sin in the Garden of Eden, sure, it's wanting to be like God, but where, what did that flow out of? I think you can make an argument that that flew, uh, flew out of, that <laughs> flowed out of. Yeah, why not? Where I wish you would have seen the, you know, heard the rain and the, not, not the, the words. Um, a discontentment for what, 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 what Adam and Eve ultimately had. And in being restless or discontent, they saw something that seemed pleasing and different and went in that direction, a devastating direction. But nonetheless, I mean, you imagine living in a place where there's one rule, and that's just don't eat that tree, all right? You get to be with God. You have a companion. There's got to be some really good food and stuff to do, all right? And that discontentment creeps in, and, and we get restless, and we begin to kind of envision a future somewhere or, or uh, something. And I think with our spiritual restlessness, um, you know, we have a real problem because whether that's looking at the past as a time of being more closeness or more emotionality in our faith or looking toward the future or sort of this place where we'll be completely fixed of all of our problems or no pain uh, or a closeness to God that we don't experience, what we fail to realize in thinking that is that the Holy Spirit was sent to us to be the inauguration and the presence of that future life. And, and we have to question if we can experience God in his presence on a kind of continual basis, that some future life where that's just a culmination of that or a direction hitting into that place, 
isn't going to be any better than it is now. And I'm certainly not saying heaven's not going to be better. I'm not trying to make an argument here like C.S. Lewis did about the different levels of heaven or any of that confusing stuff. I'm simply saying that when we simply focus on the future or focus on the past without an ability to really live in the present, and in the present, we're not really tapping into what one of the, the primary functions of the Spirit of God in us really is, is to be able to quiet our spirit, to still us, and I don't mean meditation. I mean, I, you know, people who are like me who are really, really active and have to move, sometimes our stillness comes in the midst of movement. It, it's not just me sitting someplace completely still. You know, I, when we first started the call in ministry, I, many of you, I don't think you even know these two people, but Tyler uh, Marble uh, and uh, Amy Knowles, um, we, <laughs> we would have a lot of stress because Colin, for those of you who came from Colin, is a weird place, all right? <laughs> Thankfully, UNT, you guys are so much more normal. Uh, and you know, the call-in folks, they get so used to that weirdness that they come to UNT and they get normal and they're like, this is uncomfortable. I can't make friends. Yes, because you've been at call-in. You, you're so weird. You've been with Garrett. You, I mean, gosh, Garrett, like of all people, you know? Um, but anyway... We would have these stressful weeks, and so we would listen to this. I don't even know where I got the CD, but this, like, seven-minute meditation CD. Where, and we were in the car together, and we would start our meetings like this. We did this, like, two or three times, not, like, all year. And it was like this relax every part of your body from, like, your head down to your feet. And it felt weird. I actually felt, it was weird, man, okay? It was weird. Sitting in my car, we're doing this relaxation technique. It's not what I mean about stillness, although certainly there's an argument to make that uh, what happens in our physical body uh, very much can communicate or encourage our sort of inner spirit to rest and relax. But, um, but our sp- the spirit quiets us down. It, it allows us to live in the presence uh, with, an, with an understanding of what's actually going on around us. We speak a lot in our worship songs about an awareness that certainly comes when we're focused on uh, the spirit's work in us. But also it gives us a sort of peace in the midst of a lot of just junk going on around us whether that's our own fear, anxiety, people uh, who um, are, we're sort of at odds with or who have stress going on with them, the Spirit gives us that, uh, that sort of peace. And in fact, I think that's one of the things that, uh, that is the primary responsibility of the Spirit's work within us is to, um, to kind of help us live in the presence, to see that the future and the future world that we so look forward to uh, coming about uh, is already available in so many ways uh, if we will just... Uh, kind of dig in and go deep uh, to find where he's working. And that's pretty good news. Um, and I think very, very exciting. And I'm going to kind of expand on that in just a, a little bit. So let me kind of hearken you back to a couple points that I've already made that I think I, I want to bring full circle. What does the presence of the future actually mean uh, in terms of our life? I think... Um, Austin Gage asked this question on, more or less, on our Facebook page, to which nobody answered, uh, which I don't know if you just didn't see it, you know. I've learned recently that if you comment on something, only people in the co- who's commented find out that you commented. Not anybody and everybody who's liked and or made the poll. So we did a repair cafe on cars, and I wondered why only like four of 35 of you showed up. That's because you didn't know about it. So I'm sorry about that, guys. Just to get ahead of the game, 
Next, in October, we're doing home repair. So just come on down. Second, what are we calling it? Second Skill Saturdays? Second Saturday Skills Workshop? The fourth S in there somewhere, guys. I don't really know. But if you want to come on down and learn home repair, we had a great time with the whole cars. Uh, uh, didn't we? It was so much fun. We got to work on uh, Lorena's car, yeah. Got to tell her all the problems with it. <laughs> and then didn't fix it at all. It's a theoretical repair cafe. It's not the practical or hands-on. We'll just... Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, um... But Austin's post, and I would encourage you to go back to it because uh, he's ultimately asking this question of, you know, what does it mean to walk with the Spirit? Well, hopefully as we move forward and get more specific and and narrow in our focus, you'll have a better sense of this. But uh, let me just be really careful uh, to say you don't need the sermon series to know how to do this. Walk by the Spirit is a very, very common phrase. Type it in Bible Gateway. You're going to find a whole lot of entries and just start going through them. Go by one a morning in a quiet time or in some kind of devotional time and start just learning uh, how the Holy Spirit works. There is a, it's probably too harsh to say conspiracy going on, but um, guys, the Holy Spirit is not some like background theological concept from the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is at the central point of all of Paul's understanding of what Jesus has done and who God is. And if we miss it, and we do, it's because we are literally blind to it. No, not literally blind to it. And we're simply just glossing over it because it doesn't register in our vernacular. Uh, Because we grew up in an environment where we just didn't talk about the Holy Spirit working, or we narrowed the Holy Spirit's work to our personal holiness or whatever, okay? And so at any point, when you want to try to do a little bit more work on your own in this, just type in... Don't type in Holy Spirit, all right? That's not going to work. You're going to get like 500 hits, okay? You got to type in something specific. So for my sermon next week, which is on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you just type in baptism Holy Spirit and find that this very controversial idea actually is probably one of the least talked about in Scripture. There's only about 10 references for it. Um, But you can do that. And then you can go and take that uh, on your own as sort of a devotional time. So I just say that because... um, We've got to, to, in this sermon series, be willing to go back, search through scripture, get in our own understanding and ideas of uh, a, a new of uh, how the Holy Spirit works and, and what he's doing in our community and in our life, all right? So, got to do that. Got to absolutely do that, because I'm going to try to make these pretty short and quick and uh, see what happens. Yeah. You got to do the work on your own. So, what does the presence of the future mean? Well, first of all, and I've already talked about this, it, it starts with the Spirit's agenda, which is very clearly articulated in John 14 through 16 as drawing people to God and building up the church. That is the Spirit's agenda. And we talked about how a lot of us think about the Holy Spirit as a source of personal holiness. I'm going to get to that today a little bit, but that is not how the Spirit is communicated in terms of his work. He has an agenda, and his agenda is to draw people to God everyone and anyone, and to build up the church as a witness so that he can use it to draw people to God. And that's his agenda. That's what he's doing. So when you ever wonder, you know, well, what the, what's the Holy Spirit doing? You know, how is he at work? 
identify him and his work by simply he's drawing a building. Anytime he's drawing people to, to God, because we don't come to God on our own, the Spirit draws us uh, and building up the church. Simple as that. That's just, that's, it's not that complicated. It goes back to those two things. And so part of that is a definition of what is the presence of the future. Well, the presence of the future is God is now drawing all people. Was he at some time and always? Sure, but now it's been opened up to everyone past just Israel. And that's a big deal. And he's now using the true Israel or the true church to draw people into his presence. And he's building up this church thing, uh, which uh, Jesus talks about when he talks about the mission there in Matthew 28. So there's a missional aspect here. And you've got to start with that in my mind. You've got to start with that. Because it's very easy for us to personalize and individualize in our postmodern concept the Spirit's work within us. He's doing something in me. No. He's doing something in the world, and you are lucky enough and blessed enough to be a part of that. The Spirit isn't your little individual, you know, quote of the day, self-help book for your time in life, you know, and encourage you behind the scenes, kind of that, that whole one-on-one stuff that we talk about is certainly a part of how God works, but it's a part of the larger mission of what he's doing and trying to accomplish. And if you stop with that, you don't have much at all because you miss the majority of his work in you. And that work isn't contextualized into the mission. It's simply just on your terms. Number two, and this is what uh, Leslie talked about last week, is it's God's very presence in us. God's presence was not promised in the lives of a community or an individual believer in the Old Testament in any kind of systematic way. He he withdrew his presence from Israel consistently and constantly. He withdrew his presence from individuals. David has this experience multiple times. That's what the Psalms are written as about. David could only hope and pray in the future thinking about the Spirit truly being poured out on all people. God's presence within us, it's an amazing thing one that we completely take for granted. And we know it, but we don't often experience it as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And we get experience him, we converse with him, we follow him, we have God's presence within us. And so those are the first two things and we've already talked about that. Uh, The presence of uh, the spirit in our lives, the presence of the future. Spirit's agenda and God's presence. And this third thing, and this is where I think we often start to neglect of those first two things. And, um, and that's that the Spirit does make us holy, but you can't start with that. And hopefully you've heard that from me enough to know I've at least got to rethink how I think about the Spirit's working. And this idea of the Spirit's holiness or creating us into a different kind of people is the thing that we often focus on to the neglect of the other first two. His mission and God's presence, I think this was probably clearly uh, understood last week from people, I had a lot of people ask me, what does that even mean that God, the Spirit witnesses to God's presence? That that's a new idea and or an idea that's sort of like really tough to grasp is partially our lack of understanding about what God's presence ultimately is and how God's presence Um, how the Holy Spirit continually reminds us that God is there working inside of you and witnesses to uh, and and testifies 
uh, to his presence inside of us. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, so it's fine if you still, it's kind of like, what, the, what does that mean? That sounds so strange. Um, but this third point, and the one that a, a lot of people come to and I think end with, unfortunately, when they think about the Spirit's work, is this idea of holiness. And that the Holy Spirit makes us a holy people. Well, first of all, by the time of the early church fathers, uh, the second council that they had back in about 300 AD, they had some sense, finally, collectively, that this was an important role of the Holy Spirit, all right? That he was the, the, uh, the person that made us holy. This was God's ministry in us, and the, the you know, part of, of the effect of having the Holy Spirit inside of you was you were to become more and more like God, all right? So they kind of had this sense. But what they didn't quite have an understanding of, and which the issue wouldn't come back up until the Reformers, is what to do with the Spirit's current and sort of spontaneous and instantaneous work within us. Because to say that the Spirit makes us more holy could simply mean that, you know, sort of over time, gradually, the Spirit just sort of like puts a little stuff in our Wheaties in the morning and puts some stuff in our dreams at night. And that's kind of through that process really sort of like removed, makes us more holy. But nobody was really talking about exactly what does that mean. And if they did, they were talking a lot about the disciplines But the disciplines are very tricky, and we've talked about that over the summer, because the disciplines are easily accomplished by me. I can go fast. I can go pray. I can go be an incredibly disciplined desert father where I go and stand on a pole with one leg and one arm up without eating for like 30 days, which is, I'm seriously, some of the stories from the desert fathers are absurd. I'm not even for sure they're real. They have to be legendary. But... (laughs) in order to beat their body to a place where they could, you know, solely focus on God and truly be holy, so much of the the Spirit's activity had a whole lot to do with human effort and and humans sort of becoming different and set apart from everyone else around them. And so the disciplines are great and good. Whoa, I'm sorry, Tyler. Yeah, I've done that multiple times, right? I'm going to scoot forward. There we go. Um... They're great, and there's an aspect of that that's incredibly important. There's a whole sermon series on the spirit of disciplines, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. The problem is that when we think about holiness, we generally came from a background that either emphasized discipline and activity and work as uh, as a way to be holy, or maybe emphasized rules and legalism and tradition as a way to be holy, or some extreme sensitivity to emotional connection with the Holy Spirit as a way to be holy, but there's really not a holistic picture that emerges out of the Reformation. And so what you have is splinter groups that just sort of break off from each other over this issue of how the Holy Spirit makes us holy. And you've got the Quakers who never have a liturgy and they just show up to church and whatever the Spirit does, they they do it. That's like the worst church in my mind. I'm a person of order, I'm a person of thinking, and just the idea that that would happen would make me run for the hills. And some of you are thinking, oh, I love those, those are great, you know? This boring stuff, you know, makes me sad, or well, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> so 
you got these splinter groups, all right? And Pentecostalism is really pretty new in that it's only about 150 years old because there was a particular issue, and we'll get into this a little bit next week, over uh, what the Holy Spirit's primary role is uh, beyond holiness. And so Pentecostals largely say that, you know, beyond just holiness, you can experience the Spirit in these really full and profound ways, and it's sort of a second blessing of the Spirit, whether that's evidenced by tongues or prophecy or miracles or whatever else. And that further split and fractured this group. I know this is a super boring theology lesson, but here's the thing, and here's why it's important. There has never really been a consistent set of beliefs in our day and age and since Jesus on the Holy Spirit's work. And for that, that that has been articulated, it's been articulated at this incredibly basic level that the Spirit somehow makes us holy. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in as not only a sociologist, but also a pastor, is I feel like millennials and in our non-denominational churches, which even non-denominationalism to some degree is actually kind of a Pentecostal idea, we're starting to rethink and rework our theology of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps to where in our day and age, we will be able to, for the first time, maybe ever, but at least in a long time, if maybe that's a little bit too prideful to think, articulate some more comprehensive, holistic understanding of how the Holy Spirit works. And, and I don't think that's crazy, by the way, because I think, so you talk to any Pentecostal person, I know I'm stereotyping, but I'm just going to stereotype. And you talk to them about Pentecostalism, and they're very happy that Pentecostalism is one of the fastest growing denominations. So tired of hearing it. I'm like, yeah, so is agnosticism. But do you think that's God working? I mean, (laughs) fast growth isn't a sign of godly success. Thank you very much. All right? Part of the reason Pentecostalism is growing is because we're all a lot more postmodern and into experience. And Pentecostalism has always focused on individual experience. So no wonder people, it's growing. Great, good, I'm excited. And I think Pentecostal is speaking a message to a lot of people, particularly who grew up in the Church of Christ backgrounds or the sort of cessational backgrounds that just the Holy Spirit was just like not part of the Trinity. They were just really wanted to make it a two-person Trinity. Um, That, what's the word for, what would that even be? No, divinity can't be right. Double-inity? Duality? No, duality means opposite. Duo? A duo. Yeah. That sounds so much worse in terms of theology, you know? The holy duo. Uh, Sounds like a parody uh, show on SNL, okay? No, that's not okay. Um, Right. So I think if I'm going to attempt to try to speak some global message for what the Holy Spirit is doing in our world is it definitely is refocusing people back on the importance of individual experience in religion and not just institutional religion. And so we have, a, I think, an opportunity to kind of bring some of those things together. Anyway, I say all that to say that, uh, well, actually, I don't really know what I said all to say to say. No, just kidding. I did because, you know, it's a little bit important to, to have some history on this whole idea of holiness. So holiness, um, real quickly, because, you know, it's no real way to, way to talk about this um, briefly. And so we're going to spend a lot more time 
uh, on this in the, in the kind of future here. So uh, where is holiness? What is holiness when it comes to the, the Holy Spirit? Well, again, I think you've got to at least compare three different, vastly different ideas on holiness. Uh, holiness that's often neglected because it's the most difficult time is God's character himself. Most of us think about holiness, we aren't thinking about God's character, and that's a huge problem. It's not that the scripture is not thinking about it, because scripture absolutely is. Holiness is nothing more than the spirit of God making himself, making you more like him. That's it. That's all it is. God's character reflects back. Problem is when two other sort of things begin to infiltrate that idea and definition of holiness, and that's either societal standards which decide for us more or less what is and what isn't good. And none of us can get outside of that. We're part of a society. And so as soon as society starts defining goodness, that idea and notion of goodness begins to infiltrate the idea of God's character and begin begin painting God in a way that looks more like societal good than scriptural God. Eh? We just do it. It's natural. Or... Our idea of holiness is becoming more and more like a good person according to our society, which is where a lot of Christians are. If I can just become good according to American standards of goodness or Christian standards of goodness, the Holy Spirit will have been doing his work. No, he's not doing anything. You're just living culture. Living like any other human lives. You're, You're tempting to be good. Good for you. I mean, that's great, I guess, but according to our society, which no society has even a half picture of what goodness looks like. So are some societies better than others? Sure, absolutely. I'm not one to think it's all, you know, all some pros, some cons. But it's still never going to get even remotely close to what it means to really live out God's character. Are there things that, because, you know, what ultimately trumps what? You know, this is what we've seen a lot in, as we've reviewed the, the Old Testament and, you know, the violence of God in the Old Testament. We used to have no stomach for that kind of justice. Um, and our justice system is really terrible too. We don't really care much. Uh, as long as it's not me receiving justice, someone else receiving justice, yeah, we'll be fine. But we've got no real stomach for some of this justice, and that's a whole other topic, and we can't get into it. I'm sorry. Great. The other thing is this legalism and tradition part. And this looks even more like holiness than often societal good, because we convince ourselves as churches the way we've done things or the rules that we've all come up with that are supposed to interpret holiness are really holy. This is the problem that Jesus comes across when he interacts with the Pharisees. And they've got their entire system of holiness, which looks nothing like the law, or at least the spirit of the law. And he says, you guys are good at this. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God so that you follow all your own little funny little religious rules. And, and so our idea of holiness can be tainted by what is, good for, what is good according to society, and it can be tainted by our legalism and our tradition in the church and in religions. It just can be. And so the idea of, of holiness is not simple. This is why discerning the Spirit is such an important aspect of the Spirit's work inside of us, because we will hear from the Spirit, think it's from God, and it's simply just some value of our society or a value of our church being re-articulated in our mind and we're attributing it to the Spirit's work in us. Discernment is important. We gotta discern the truth because otherwise we're headed down a path uh, that's basically the same path 
uh, as anybody else who would just be looking for uh, something to believe in or something to agree with. And, and largely Pentecostalism, and I know I'm not supposed to really be talking about Pentecostalism because that's for the class, uh, particularly in rural areas, has simply been legalism and tradition. Going back to some old way of traditional values as if those traditional values of the, there's a funny Family Guy episode, and I know I shouldn't be watching Family Guy, but I do, all right? And there's this prayer <laughs> clapping, right? Yeah, Jacob, Yeah. There's this prayer, this really funny Amish prayer that you can look up. And it, in the, the prayer, he basically just says, thank you, God, for giving us everything we needed for our holiness and for our life in between the years of 1865 and 1895. Like, it was just this idea that was focusing on, like, everything we knew and know we got in that 30-year period, and, man, that's what we're going to stick with. And that's, that's legalism tradition at its core. It's trying to find some time period that either finds, com- you know, is comfortable to us, makes sense to us, we have kind of have control over, and then deciding that a person who, who fits into those values is ultimately holy or good or whatever. And that is so anti the Spirit's ability uh, in our hearts and minds to adapt to culture and to adapt to people and to adapt on the non-essential things so as to show God's character as being consistent and applicable and relevant in any time period, in any situation, with anybody he's created. It just goes against it. And so the idea of the Spirit working in us to make us holy people is very exciting, but it doesn't, it doesn't come with its own challenge, it, without its own challenges the least of which is our adding our own definition of, uh, of, of what is holy, what is right. This is why I love um, in the Reframe class in the fifth episode, the one right in the middle with Rick Watts, uh, for those of you who you know, remember Rick from fall camp. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, he talks about people keeping versus Sabbath keeping. And that's his definition of holiness is just like you would keep the Sabbath, you would work hard to make sure you weren't, you know, messing up or, or um, you know, uh, doing anything on the Sabbath you shouldn't be doing. People keeping is making sure that you're treating people uh, as if you are keeping them in terms of your taking care of them. They're your responsibility. And he defines holiness that way, and it's such a great uh, way of defining holiness because it gets back to God's character. And that's who God is, the one that leaves the 99 to go find the one. He's a people keeper, not a Sabbath keeper, right? Sabbath was, you know, uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. It was just one other way to recognize God's character. In fact, we've lost this idea almost entirely, but, but I remember going back a few years ago and deciding I needed to like slow down my life and reading a Sabbath book and just the simple idea that the whole idea of Sabbath is for us to stop working and recognize that the world is still going to spin because God's the ones who, whose work is significant. And anything we do is ultimately nothing. And this goes back to the Spirit being inside of us, giving us peace and rest because Sabbath or the Holy Spirit's work is a recognition that the Spirit has an agenda. The Spirit is making me holy. And my pathetic and you know, small attempts at trying to do this on my own are not going to work. At best, I can just surrender and work at that surrender with everything I've got and every choice I've got. And that's painful enough, the just surrender part of it. 
much less trying to actually work towards the stuff that we were never meant to work towards in the first place. Yeah. So let me give you kind of what I feel like are a, a few images that I think are helpful in terms of thinking um, about the Spirit making us holy people. And number one is I found that the Bible's imagery of us being mist or vapor is a really helpful idea. Certainly in Ecclesiastes, as we read through that, the author just talks about us being a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. But one of the cool things about mist, all right, is that mist, as far as I know, I mean, I don't know, I'm not that smart when it comes to mist science. But um, all mist is, right, is kind of a uh, cooling or is it a warming? I guess it's a cooling of the air. Yes. <laughs> that makes it more dense, and it just sort of sticks there, and you can see it, because you go from gas to, uh, you know, to, to little water droplets, right? Liquid, gas to liquid. Yeah. It's like in your car, you know? If you have, you know, fog on the window... And it's hot outside, well, if it's cold outside, you got to turn the, the, the thing on cold, man. can't keep it on hot. People are like hot defrosting their windows. You know how this works? It doesn't work like that. You got a cold defrost, or at least put it in the middle where the air is neutral. Okay, sorry. <laughs> People are like writing down something that's like, rich analogy, you know, that's... No, but there's a couple things that I like from that mist analogy. Number one is when we really think about our lives as a mist it really kind of hastens our attention to the most important priorities. Because if we're here today and gone tomorrow, uh, which is hard to think through, right? I mean, you know, can you imagine living 900 years? Some of that. I don't know if that's to take that literally or what. But can you imagine? How do you live life for 900 years? <laughs> think about it, man. You're, we would be like... Five two percent of through our life right now. That's awful to think about. Maybe I don't know. How would you think differently? There's a book called the uh, Post Mortals. It's all about. It's a post-apocalyptic book, and I think it's a really good book. And it's all about uh, they find the the cure for aging. And so, what happens to society when everybody's living as long as they want to live, and everyone stops aging at 25? So you can still die of like car wrecks and things like that, but you can't die of like natural causes anymore. And so society, as you can imagine, just goes crazy. And the book sort of, and this isn't giving anything away, but the book basically uh, ends with this guy's job as a hitman. He's a hitman. People pay him, but they pay him to kill themselves at a random and odd time because life has lost all of its sweetness being able to live that long. And so they just pay him and they're like, yeah, here's how I want to die. Here's the period of time I want to die. And that's what he becomes as a hitman for people themselves. It's a good book. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think it's really good. All right. But uh, I can't wait till they make it to a movie. It'd be such a good movie. Um, do they have cookies? And I have good hearing, okay? <laughs> so, 
The reason I mention that is because uh, when we really have such a short time to live, when we think of our lives as being a mist, it really does encourage us to think about the important things. But I think there's even some other interesting ideas with the mist analogy. I'm not for sure if any of these people really thought about them, but mist is technically more dense than the air around it, and therefore it's seen. It's something that can be really seen. Most people go through their lives, I think, pretty unseen. But God's holiness can't help but be seen. And when people experience it and see it, it, there's a depth to it that just affects us. We can't see past it. Fog is just more dense mist, you know? Um, So we can't see past it. Jesus uses this exact same analogy when he talks about coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And in this weird, uh, these three basically weird passages, he says he's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire, which has gotten a lot of Pentecostals pretty excited, you know? Um, (laughs) Well, we didn't even talk about that until next week, all right? I believe it's actually not that significant at all. In fact, if you really kind of look at the passage itself, what? What are you laughing about? Okay. If you look at the passage at all, what he's actually comparing this analogy to is the wheat and the the chaff, right? He's basically saying, get rid of that chaff that's just surface level junk on the outside of the wheat, and let's get to the meat, uh, the wheat that's just going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we become the wheat, the actual stuff that becomes food and nurturant and that chaff stuff, which is just that nasty stuff on the outside. I know probably a lot of you haven't done a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, what do you, I don't even know what to call it, actually. That's, that's how little I've done. I'm all trying to be impressive, you know. Um, that forking wheat, you know. Threshing. Threshing wheat. There we go. Not forking wheat, believe it or not. Uh, so wheat and the chaff. That the Holy Spirit deepens uh, us and uh, makes us fruitful and nourishing to, to other people. I mean, you think about how many things are made from wheat and, uh, and these examples and analogies. And all that chaff stuff, that's just going to get burned up. All that surface level stuff, done. And apart from the Holy Spirit working inside of us, our lives are just, uh, you know, not even a mist. It's just air, unseen, no depth. Um, and I think that's the, the kind of thing that he's hitting at here is because those things ultimately pass away. There's a book that we all read, just to kind of close us out here. Um, Not all of us, we did this in a small group. (laughs) Something initiated this. I think someone posted something about Jim Carrey having an existential moment on the fashion week, you know? Jim Carrey, man, he's just so trippy, right? But all you gotta do is just watch Eternal uh, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind and you'll completely understand Jim Carrey, right? Just from then on out, you'll just always see him as that guy in that movie, and it'll be like, it'll make so much more sense. Um, or Man on the Moon, either one, you know. But uh, So he said a bunch of nonsense, but um, it reminded me of what, what Bloom says, and he just kind of talked about how uh, Bloom, who writes this book called Beginning to Pray, says that we're all just sort of incapable of dealing with the nothingness inside of us. If you were just to sit for 20 or 30 or, or 40 minutes or whatever, you would be absolutely stunned at how you just can't do it. Because we think we have all this depth and all this, you know, and our uniqueness is, is, you know, deep and our interests are deep and our experiences are deep. And yet Bloom talks about how most of our lives really just is a reaction to external stimuli. Something happens to us and we react to it. And we move from one external thing to the next 
without any real depth. Something inside of us that's self-sustaining and self-sufficient. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He's self-sustaining and self-sufficient. And the more you learn how to pour into uh, time, listening to the Spirit, discerning the Spirit's voice, the more that depth inside of you grows. You actually have something there. And you're not just moving from one thing to the next, one activity to the next. In a sense, and of course this is what Bloom says, is that's when you can really begin to pray. That's when you recognize the nothingness inside of you. Many of us simply don't have a need or desire for a conversation with God because we tend to think of ourselves as pretty full. And we're pretty full because we have so many external things to be full of. But they're just scratching the surface. It's the chaff on the outside of the wheat. It's the air, uh, you know, but not the mist. And the spirit is ultimately uh, what really deepens uh, us and ultimately makes our lives really sweet and worthwhile as we begin uh, to learn and, and really be uh, injected, which is a weird word, um, with, uh, with the Spirit's presence in us. And I, I like that because, you know, the more you look at some of these metaphors and analogies, you, you start to kind of pick them apart and you realize what this holiness is actually about. Unfortunately, we tend to externalize the holiness, you know? Well, I'll obey this command, I'll do this one thing so that I can accomplish this or respond to this or overcome this rather than being aware uh, of the depth of the situation. And we move from one experience to the next because we've got so many of them, and that's exciting. So uh, just to sum up here, because, you know, again, this is the, the, the three kind of foundational ideas that I really want you to think through and understand. And if this has been a little bit too heady or kind of all over the place, uh, it's because you were attempting to, to distill a lot of a pretty deep and important stuff into just a few kind of smaller talks. And so I really encourage you to take some of these ideas and go back and search through scriptures on, uh, where the Holy Spirit is talked about, whether that's Jesus himself talking about the Spirit. Certainly John 14 through 16 is a great starting place. Uh, or whether it's Paul talking about the Spirit's you know, work and activity. And so far, a lot of what we've been drawing on has been from you know, the Gospels and from Acts. Okay? And Acts, of course, could be considered Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, but we'll be moving forward into some really specific and narrower issues that if you don't have this foundation for, it might be more difficult to understand. And so that's the Spirit's agenda, learning how to understand the mission of the Spirit, him drawing and building, God's presence, experiencing God, being able to converse with him. Uh, and then this other idea, which is uh, um, the one that we probably are most exposed to, but maybe know very little about still, and that's the idea of the Spirit creating a holiness inside of us. It separates us from the lack of depth uh, that's so common in, uh, in human nature apart from God. Uh, Lord God, thank you for uh, promising us and delivering on the Holy Spirit. Stuff's a little bit out of our vocabulary and hard to explain and describe in adequate words. So we just try our best, and we try to um, just not be impressed with ourselves or our own understanding or our own techniques and activity, but uh, to try to continue to be impressed with your character and who you are. Help us to make the uh, spirit that you've given us about you and not about us about our sense of right and wrong and our 
ability to feel unique or significant, but help us to just be faithful to you. Um, Help us redefine success in ministry and in our own lives as not uh, shallow growth, but as depth and awareness of, of who you are and how you love people and how you treat them. Lord, as we take communion together, we just thank you for the most amazing event in human history, that you would come down and do what you did for a majority of people who would have nothing to do with you, rejected you and despised you and at least misunderstood you. You would still love us enough, um, love your creation enough. And we just take this in memory of Jesus and uh, of just this great gift that you've given us of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Help us not to take him for granted. Spirit, speak to us. Help us to listen to you, to discern the things that you tell us, to listen to your voice through others, through the word. Um, and just lead us in the direction you want us, Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.